Hi, thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. This is where you get to listen to a curated collection of the editor's top picks of our recent articles. For when you need to be eyes-free or hands-free, but still want to discover the seen and unseen. Daunted by Dadhood, Encouraged by Dad, by Nick Brewer. I'm about to become a father for the first time. While there is excitement and joy as my wife and I prepare to start this new chapter of life, I'm not sure that I feel qualified to be a dad. As someone with an anxious disposition, I like to be as prepared as possible for any task ahead. However, just six weeks from the due date, I could quite easily do with another nine months to to get ready for the new arrival. I've been reading books about parenting, listening to podcasts, attending classes with my wife, all to try and equip myself with the necessary skills. I've also tried to do as much DIY as my limited skill set allows me to make the house baby ready. Yet, I can't get away from this nagging feeling that I might not have what it takes to be a good dad. Watching my wife flourish over these last few months, building a strong connection with a baby and preparing for motherhood is quite astonishing. Honestly, I can't say that I have that same feeling of connection with the baby. This lack of connection became clearest to me when my wife first suggested that I speak to the bump so that the baby could get to know my voice. As I hesitantly stooped down and got in position to talk, my mind went a complete blank. What do I say to a bump? I'm rarely at a loss for words, but I was stumped. An awkward, hello, and how are you, wasn't cutting it. Suddenly, I had an idea to sing a song. My song of choice was All My Loving by the Beatles. This isn't a song that I've listened to in at least ten years, and my wife had never even heard it. So why did this song come to mind at that moment? Some sort of distant memory had crept in of my own father singing this to me as a child most nights before I went to sleep. As this memory came back to me, I started to think, what can I learn about the role of a father from the example set by my own father? My dad is a very different character to me. While I often overthink and worry about everything, my dad just seems to have an ability to get on with life, regardless of what he might be going through. He's not the most outwardly emotional man. It would be rare for him to answer the question, how are you, with anything other than fine. He's much more of a man's man than me, one of those guys that just seems generally good at most handy things. He's the type of guy that you would want to help install laminate flooring or rewire a lamp. He's reliable, having been with the same employer for nearly 40 years, and he gives great financial advice. He's not hyper-masculine in any way, but he's solid, dependable. He would do anything for anyone, no matter what it cost him. He has a lot of qualities that a good father needs, and as his son, I've reaped many rewards from having a dad like this. I've grown up feeling safe 
and reassured. And while I've picked up some of my dad's traits, I'm not sure how similar we are. I'm a lot more emotionally wired than he is. I worry about things that I imagine have never even crossed his mind. I've spent a lot of time chasing creative pursuits and sought work opportunities that I believed would fulfil me. I spent countless hours trying to figure out my purpose. I'm extremely unskilled when it comes to DIY. I worry that I'm just a lot more selfish than he is. Can I reach the incredibly high bar that my dad has set for parenting? I'm not so sure, but I've got no excuse not to, as I've had a near-perfect example in him. While I could go on about my dad's various qualities, when I think of the ways in which he has impacted me most, one of the most important things he did was create a safe environment for me to grow up and develop in. From a young age, I just had this feeling that I could express anything to my dad. Over the years, I've asked countless questions, expressed numerous fears and explored several different interests with him. Looking back as an adult... I imagine that I've frustrated my dad on several occasions, pondering and worrying about things that he knew I didn't need to. But he didn't shut me down. He created space for me to express those things. There's a piece of advice from James, one of the leaders of the early Christians, way back 1,900 years ago. He encouraged his reader to be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to get angry. That's what my dad exhibited to me. He didn't bat away my worrisome thoughts or ignore my silly questions. He didn't show frustration, although I'm sure at times he might have wanted to. The way that he interacted with me communicated that I was safe and loved. I'm sure he didn't get everything right, and I imagine if I asked him, he would probably be able to detail all the things he did wrong. But through his willingness to patiently let me become myself, with the parental guidance that was required of him, of course, he demonstrated love. For me, the love my father showed me is a picture of God's love for his children. As I spend these last few weeks to prepare in whatever way I can to become a dad, I rest assured that even though I am guaranteed to get things wrong, I will have ample opportunity to love my child. St Paul described love as, among many other things, patient, kind, the opposite of self-seeking, and always protective. As I embark on a journey where I will try and fail and try again to be a good father, I know that I don't need to be perfect. I just need to show love in tangible ways. My favourite line of All My Loving by the Beatles is All my loving I will send to you. I can't wait to get the opportunity to do that with my unborn child. Smells Like a Church in Here by Henna Cundill When I was a 22-year-old undergraduate, my mother died quite suddenly. I can't remember the name of the undertakers we used, nor the chaplain who took the funeral. I can no longer visualise what any of their faces looked like. I know I visited the chaplain's house to plan the funeral, 
but I can't remember exactly where that house was. What sticks is that the day of the funeral was a sultry summer's day, and both the chaplain and the undertakers smelt of perspiration. To this day, there are moments when I catch that same whiff of man-sweat in some other location, and for a fleeting second, I am a bewildered 22-year-old once more. Here is another memory. I attended a tiny rural Church of England primary school in the middle of England. At the end of each school year, all of us donned our little Wellington boots, which smelt faintly of slurry, since this was dairy farming country, and sweaty feet. Then we lined up in a crocodile and trudged through the bluebell wood, damp leaves, and skirted the edge of fields, silage which stings the nose, covering the mile or so between our school building and the village church. We would enter the church grounds through the back field, hurrying through an eerily muffled graveyard with tombstones towering far above our heads and the grass disturbingly lumpy beneath our feet. To the chidings of quickly and quietly, we children scurried down a gravel path away from this unsettling place of death to reach the cool sanctuary of a little church and the comforting smells, for me at least, of damp stone and dusty hymn books. Others may have not the same associations, but for me the smell of dust and damp stone will always cry safety and the reassurance that there are no ghosts in here, in contrast to that troubling graveyard. From death to life, yet at the same time getting stuck with my nose in some man's whiffy armpit on the tube will forever insinuate that I am just a child, pretending to be a grown-up, out of my depth, overwhelmed with one thousand decisions to make. What flowers do you want for her coffin? And no one to advise. In the midst of life, death again. Of course, I am not 22 years old and lost anymore, no matter what that man's armpit tries to tell me. My rational mind knows better, but my rational mind doesn't get a say, or doesn't get the first say anyway. This is because smell is the only one of our four senses that bypasses the thalamus, the brain's filtering gate, that decides which part of the brain needs to respond to sensory input. It goes straight to the limbic system, where emotional memory is stored. Sometimes it's very obvious that this is taking place, such as in the examples given above. On reflection, I will know that my emotions are being manipulated by my nose, in ways which are more or less than helpful, depending on the circumstances. But it can happen in more subtle ways too. Supermarkets infamously pump out smells to influence our buying choices. And we're trying to sell our house right now, so we've been brewing a whole lot more coffee than we usually would. Intriguingly, scientists don't really know why the human sense of smell jumps the queue when it comes to cognitive processing. There are biological theories, such as that the smell of a predator could wake up our ancestors while they were sleeping and or could allow them to follow a scent trail quickly when fleeing danger or seeking food. There are social theories too, such as that we don't have a lot of good words to describe smells, so the brain just doesn't bother trying to analyse them. Whatever the truth of the matter, the reality is that, whether we like it or not, 
Our noses are an emotional trip hazard. I can't help wondering what this tells me about my religious practice. Do I go to church because I have made a cognitive decision to worship God each Sunday? Or do I go to church because I'm following my nose? Getting away from a world full of armpits and responsibilities to a place where I am a seven-year-old girl or gingham dress and wellies, feeling safe. If so, does it matter? Truth is, my mind can give me a dozen reasons not to go to church every single week. In fact, two dozen reasons, more. It has always been a busy week. I'm always behind on work. The house always needs a sort out and the car is never washed. But because certain congregation members are normally counting on me for certain things, and because I'm still pretending to be a grown-up, I typically drag myself out of the door and off to church I go. And week on week, without fail, when I walk through those great oak doors, there is a moment, a glitch in the matrix, when the unmistakable smell of church hits my nose, dust and damp, a little hint of mouse. My body registers this before my mind, my shoulders drop a little of their tension. Even if it's just for a fleeting moment, I start to feel that I know for sure what is absolutely real in my life and what is just pretend. Is this knowledge irrational, since it doesn't come from the cognitive part of my mind? Or is there a God who knows that the cognitive part of my mind sometimes tells me all sorts of untrue and unhelpful things? Is there a God who is choosing to reach out to me in more subtle, more ancient ways? I can only wonder if I have been following my nose all this time without even noticing, drawn along by an ancient scent trail that leads me time and time again this way and that way, until I reach a place where there is safety and bread. How to Face the Space of Death by Natalie Garrett Death is something I've thought about quite a lot, As a bereaved friend, granddaughter, niece and daughter. Also as an Anglican priest who has pastoral responsibilities for those who are grieving and who conducts funerals. And as a mother of children who live in a vicarage and hear a lot about mummy and daddy doing funerals too. Death is a part of our life in a way it doesn't seem to be in a lot of families. My first experience of death was when my grandfather died. I think I was about six. My memories of it are mostly about how the adults behaved. I remember with uncharacteristic clarity the evening when Grandma came to tell us that Grandad had died. I don't remember what she said, but I remember the feeling in the room. I remember it feeling as if someone had sucked all the air out, as if we were floating in a strange and uncomfortable space. I remember sitting in the kitchen with my mother not knowing the rules of engagement for this situation and feeling scared by that. And in my experience over the many years since then and in many different situations, I think most people faced with death for the first time experience that same fear 
of not knowing how to be in the space of death. I don't know what to say. While I was a student, I had a friend who was the only Christian any of us knew. He also had cancer and didn't have long to live. He made the choice to do what people his age who didn't have a death sentence to carry around with them were doing, and he went to uni. He was one of the bravest people any of us had ever met, and at his funeral a whole load of us from uni turned up to pay tribute to this amazing young man who had touched so many lives by the way he had so courageously lived with death. One of my daughter's godmothers died of bowel cancer. She was one of the most faithful Christians I've ever known. When she was diagnosed, the whole church prayed for her healing. But the cancer grew and the chances of survival shrank. But wow, did she use her last few months, weeks, days well. She wasn't afraid of dying, so she talked openly about it to everyone. And the healing that came from how she lived then was powerful and widespread. She was an incredibly organised person and wanted to make sure she tied up all possible loose ends, like selling her house. She told with such joy about the conversation she had with the estate agent who came round to value her house, who asked all the usual questions. So, are you looking to move soon? Where are you going? I can only imagine his face as she answered with complete honesty about where she knew she was going. And I remember with a powerful mixture of emotions the conversation I had with her when I went to say goodbye. I'll see you there, she said as I closed the door behind me. Several decades after that visit from my grandmother, as a grown-up and now a Christian, I had the privilege of conducting my grandmother's funeral. Grandma had been such a huge and influential part of my life and it was unthinkable that I should leave the service and not be allowed to be a grieving granddaughter. But it was even more unthinkable to risk someone else doing it in case they didn't do it well. I visited her in a chapel of rest a couple of days before the service so that I could say what I needed to say and cry as much as I was able. As I led the service and thus guided my family through the process of saying goodbye to the matriarch of our clan. I could hold that space that I'd been so afraid of all those years ago. I could give form and shape to the place of that which we must all face, but which we all avoid so passionately in our Western culture. Because as a Christian, I know something, I know someone bigger than death. There's a famous story in the Bible when Jesus' friend Lazarus died. Jesus isn't there while Lazarus is ill. In fact, he isn't there when he dies. He turns up four days later. In the Jewish culture of which Jesus was a part, there were all sorts of rules to comply with around death. And one of the traditions was to gather the local community, including professional mourners, to weep and wail, to encourage the expression of emotion. Lazarus's sisters were angry that their good friend Jesus hadn't been there when they needed him. They were angry that their brother Lazarus had died. They were angry and needed someone to blame. I think we can all relate to that. When someone we love is suffering, when someone we love dies, a natural part of the grieving process is anger. And that anger is often directed at God, whether we believe in him or not. 
When Jesus arrives, he generously receives their emotional rebuke, allowing them to give voice to their pain. And then he goes to the grave where Lazarus has been lying dead for four days. And in the shortest verse in the Bible, we are privy to his reaction. Jesus wept. Even God is distressed by the reality of death. Death was never meant to happen. Death was never part of God's good plan for humanity. And it makes him weep. He turns up unafraid of the raw reality of death and bereavement. Of course, in that situation there was a reprieve. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and the morning turned to celebration. But, of course, although we never hear about Lazarus's final death, he did die, just like all the rest of us. Death is the one thing we all have in common. Different cultures react to death differently. In some cultures, the entire community stops doing normal life and gather round the bereaved. In our culture, the Western culture, all too often, we pretend nothing has happened. We are determined to keep death in a box, packed as far deep as possible so we don't have to look at it. Death seems to be the final taboo of our culture the most intimate and unmentionable part of life. Which means that we're not very good at death. And a good death is a beautiful thing. The Christian friends I've known who died untimely young deaths have shown me that. People who are not afraid of death, people who know what's going to happen after they've died, can pave the way for us to walk into the place of death and find beauty there. As we face death head-on, we stare into the place of what's really important. Everyone says glibly that on our deathbed we won't be wishing we'd spent more time at work, but let's not wait till our deathbed to work out where we need to spend more time. Let's learn how to live well now, not hiding from the only guaranteed fact of our future. At Lazarus's graveside, Jesus made the rather elliptical claim I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. When Jesus himself died, naked and nailed to a cross, he took on the greatest enemy of life. And he won. As Jesus rose again on the third day, he claimed victory over death. As Christians follow Jesus through this life, they do so in the assurance of eternal life with him after death. Wow, that's the place of hope, isn't it? That's the place where you can look death right in the face, unafraid. The Christian message of hope is a life raft in the cold, choppy waters of bereavement. It gives form and shape to something we don't understand and we don't want to have to navigate. It gives us courage to accept the truth when we really don't want to. Knowing that there is something, someone, who is bigger than death. And knowing that death, either my own or that of someone I love, isn't the end of the story, gives me the capacity to walk confidently and unafraid through my life towards its inevitable end and into what's next. 
to quote my friend, I hope I'll see you there. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to get more curated articles from Seen and Unseen Aloud. We hope you discover a world that is greater, more full of meaning and sense than you ever imagined.